This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space Radio. This is the second interview in our series on living with anxiety. Last week, I interviewed John William Keaty about his experience with social anxiety and his work as a photographer to portray that anxiety. This week, we're going to be doing an interview about OCD and also the way that OCD can often overlap with other anxiety disorders, including panic and general anxiety. My guest today is Rob, who is a licensed psychotherapist in private practice, who was diagnosed with OCD at the age of 21. And Rob also suffers from debilitating anxiety and panic attacks. He's married, he lives in the Boston area, and hasn't had a panic attack in months. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Rob. Oh, thanks, Anne. Great to be here. My pleasure. So we're going to talk today about obsessive-compulsive disorder, and I think it might be worth us just defining what that is to start out with, which is typically a pattern of obsessive thoughts that even if they don't make sense to the person, nonetheless, they can't get them out of their head. They're kind of like a closed loop from which there's no exit. And the only seeming exit is by a, a compulsion, some kind of repetitive action, um, often stereotyped as kind of cleaning or checking, um, or counting or tapping things um, as a way to try to escape from the pattern of obsessions. So let me just ask you, Rob, does that description fit your experience? And if so, how? Yes, it does. Um, that's a good description. Uh, for me, uh, it also includes trouble with making decisions to the point where I get paralyzed with a decision. I see. So the the obsession is the is the decision making itself, like back and forth, That's back right. and forth, back yeah. and forth, over and over in my head, because either choice seems like it's going to be the wrong one. Oh. And so I know you were diagnosed at age twenty one, but tell me a little bit about how this first showed up in your life. Right. Well, I did suffer from it with it from an early age, but no one really put a finger on it until twenty one. Um, so I did go through the typical type of obsessions that uh, kids do go through, which is like hand-washing, um, having to do things just right, like tap things a certain number of times. I remember my mom calling me from upstairs when I was down in our crawl space where the bikes were kept, and I had to tap my bicycle X number of times before it felt just right. And if I didn't, it was just this awful feeling that, something bad would happen. And so I would be kind of glued to my bike in the crawl space, tapping it. It should be like, dinner's on the table already. And that's what it was like. This, when you describe this awful feeling something bad would happen, so it sounds like dread about something really bad happening is a huge part of the experience. That's right. Like something would happen to me, something would happen to my bicycle, something would happen in general, but it was kind of a vague feeling of something dread, dreaded would occur. And uh, I think my parents were overall very patient, uh, but there are times when they just lost it because I was so crazed with uh, certain thoughts. And uh, I remember specifically going to camp, uh, maybe like age 11 or something like that, and uh, I wanted to make sure my parents knew everything that I felt guilty about, and I kept asking them over and over, are you sure you understand what I'm saying? Did you hear me just right? 
and they would say, oh, Rob, nothing you've done could be so bad that you um, need to worry about it. And I would say, yeah, but I just need to tell you one more thing. And this went on the whole ride up to New Hampshire from Massachusetts. I just felt I had this compulsion to get these things that I felt so guilty about out so that they heard them and they could forgive me. And if I left anything, any stone unturned, it would leave me with this debilitating anxiety that, that they didn't hear everything perfectly. So it was almost like the only way to feel relieved of your guilt was to make sure you'd gotten all of it out. You'd confessed all of it. Yeah, but it seemed like it was endless. Oh, I see. So there was, it was, there was no way to exit. It was just like a loop that could just keep going and going and going. Yeah, and as we got closer to camp, I felt the anxiety increase to the point where I was just going out of my mind because um, I knew they were going to be leaving me off for two months. I see. So you understand that now it sounds like that you that the real anxiety was about the separation and the amount of time That's and so exactly on. exactly right. It was really about the separation from my parents because my parents I was very, very close to. You know, one psychiatrist had said to me, you're almost like attached like a umbilical cord still. Mm. Now that was as an adult or that was when you were a child? That was when like, I was older. I see. And as you know, you know, anxiety is usually such a physical experience. When you're caught in a sort of OCD loop, when you're caught in a, in a loop of not being able to do the thing enough to get relief, what is that like for you in your body? Well, I feel powerless. I feel like almost like I used to equate it as a kid and even as an adult, like, like Superman with kryptonite on his, around his body. Right, so here's this person who's normally so strong, who's like completely disabled. Yeah. Feels helpless. Very helpless. So it sounds like you felt helpless in some ways to get rid of it, but the feeling of the anxiety itself, is it like pounding heart, beating, you know, like shortness of breath? What is the actual anxiety itself like? Yeah, my my body would be tingling and also um, just this terrible dread, like a, I'm... I can't breathe, I can't survive it. You know, even as an adult, if I fast forward, uh, I'd be in my office with debilitating anxiety. Like, I felt like I almost wanted to jump out the window. The anxiety was so bad. So when you were 21, what yeah. was it that was, what was it that was going on that actually finally brought this to medical attention? Well, I actually was working with a psychiatrist who was kind of rather impatient with me and I was on the phone with him when I was obsessing about something at, at my job I was working in an insurance company and I was obsessing about something and it, he just blurted out over the phone you have OCD and part of me was like well I kind of know that another part of me was like and you're telling me over the phone and another part of me was like relief there's a name for what I'm going through Right, then like, you could get a handle on it if it had a name in a certain way. Yeah, giving it a name really kind of, oh, so this is what it's been all about. It, it's unfortunate that he sounds like he, did he say it in a manner of like his realization, like, oh, this is finally, I get what this is, what this is, or did he say it almost in a frustrated with you kind of in way? In a frustrated way, like, enough of this already, you're obsessing, you have OCD. Uh-huh. 
looking back as a therapist now, I, I think he was feeling helpless and, you know, he kind of reminded me of my father. Uh. You know, my father's a great man, but he would get very impatient. It sounds like watching someone you love who's kind of caught in a place of indecision, back and forth, back and forth, can be so hard that I can imagine being impatient, you know. Have, have you had a, a number of people in your life who've had to really wrestle with being patient with it? Yes. Um, you know, what comes to mind is women that dated me and how difficult it's for them because they're suddenly thrown into a world of OCD that they never had to deal with before. I had this one girlfriend, it was actually my first girlfriend named Rachel, lovely person, most caring person you could imagine, very patient. And, you know, the example that comes to mind is we were driving uh, on the way to the beach on a beautiful sunny day, and I had to pull over by the side of the road because I was feeling so awful that I couldn't decide whether to stay with her or not. And that's how my OCD tends to manifest, is that I would have terrible difficulty with decisions, and one of them was whether to stay with her or not. And so you had to pull over. There you are. You're going to the beach. It's yeah, we're on the that. highway, driving down 128 in Needham, and all of a sudden I remember right in Needham pulling over at a rest stop and saying, I can't go on. And she's like, well, what do you mean? And I would say, well, as I told you before, because I had a tendency to purge my feelings, I said to her, I'm wrestling with whether I can stay with you. And she says, right now you're wrestling with that? Like, we're on the way to the beach. And I would go over that and over that again and again. And there was a part of me that felt so bad because she was such a wonderful person and still is. Why would I hurt somebody that I actually loved? And I did love her. Why would I do that? And what kind of person was I if I had to say these things in detail to the nth degree? I see. So in in your need to kind of relieve yourself of your guilt that you might be stringing her along when you had these thoughts, you ended up telling her these things that would hurt her again and again. Yeah, and then I just felt awful about myself, and I could see in her face that I was hurting her, but it was like that little kid at camp that I had to just get it all out, otherwise it would just stay in my head and go over and over in my head, and I I couldn't deal with that. And so fast forward now to the present. So what I hear, though, from the camp story is that confessing to the nth degree didn't actually give you the freedom that you were longing for. And it sounds like with her it didn't really either. How do you manage the kind of compulsion to confess your feelings, as it were, to purge your feelings? How do you handle that now? Well, I finally got to a good psychologist who understood OCD, and what I learned that the more I scratched at the itch that compelled me to purge, the more it turned up the volume of the obsession. And this psychologist who really specialized in OCD taught me that if I fight the urge to scratch the first time, and just live with the anxiety of not saying something, that the itch wouldn't start to fester. And that's easier said than done because the itch is very strong. And what he taught me was that it would come to a head, the anxiety, and then the anxiety would start to come down if I didn't itch at it. 
If you resist the first time, it actually subsides? Sometimes it would. Sometimes it wouldn't. Sometimes I'd have to give in just because the urge was so strong. Yeah. And then there's a part of me that would beat myself up for giving into the scratch. Of course. Right. And then you get to feel guilty about that. Yeah, there'd be terrible shame. Um, oh, you know, I wasn't strong enough to not give into the urge. Did you find as you started to know yourself better that you tried to hide it from people or did you find that there was no way to hide it and so you had to tell people up front? Like, how did you handle the kind of disclosure about it? Mm. Well, I remember, you know, my parents knew about it, but then they wanted to share it with my brothers and they kind of laughed when they were told about it and I wanted to sort of collapse and, and hide from it. I mean, that's when I first felt shame. What, why, why did they laugh? Uh, I remember they, one of the things that I often did was they would touch my hair because they knew it bothered me. You know, I always felt like, oh, their hands sticky, are they, are they dirty, you know, would I have to wash my hair a hundred times to get it clean? And so when my mom mentioned that I had OCD, there was one of the brothers, I can't remember which one, because I have two, they sort of said, yeah, I guess that makes sense, given all the trouble you've had with us touching your hair. And there was some chuckle with that, but yeah, it was kind of painful. No, it sounds like, because it sounds like it was a torture for you inside. Yeah. Not, not really funny at all. I was kind of um, relieved to be able to finally tell someone, and then, and then it wasn't met with understanding. Yeah. You mentioned that there were other things that helped you. I'd like to hear, what were the things that have really helped? Well, to talk about those things, we have to be really fast forward to um, after I became a therapist. Okay. Um, I followed a model called Internal Family Systems, uh, developed by Dick Schwartz. And for the first time, a therapist was really patient to listen to each part of me that felt one way or another about the same topic. In previous therapies, uh, I had a psychologist who would tell me that a thought that I had was obsessive, and I didn't feel like she really wanted to hear about why I wanted something or didn't want something. It was more like just labeling it as obsessive and in internal family systems with the right therapist, he would really listen in detail to each side that had something to say about the same topic. You know, why I wanted to be with that girlfriend, why I didn't want to be with that girlfriend. And how did that help, Rob? Well, not quite sure still. I think it's that each part got their time. So interesting. Sounds like when you really honored the obsession, when you didn't try to shush it or move on past it. Yeah. Actually, the overall anxiety lessened to the point that the obsession didn't have to be so powerful. That's right. Huh. So maybe your very early instinct as a child going to camp about needing to be heard was actually really right on. Yeah, I certainly can understand how parents, the girlfriend, whoever was involved would get frustrated because <laughs> I could go on and on for hours. Right, and I certainly know. I mean, I'm sitting here listening to you, and I'm having this kind of sinking feeling in my heart of knowing at times as a therapist when I've worked with someone with obsessions where I haven't been nearly as patient as I should have, and I'm feeling very remorseful. 
And I appreciate so much what you're saying about the, the importance of the therapist managing their own their own impatience so they can really be present. I'm, I'm going to I'm resolving to do better, Rob, inspired by you. Yeah, well, the psychologist that I've worked with for the last three or four years has been such a breath of fresh air in terms of the patients to listen to each part. That was something that I never had before to that degree. Mm. I want to ask you now about the, the overlap, because we've been talking almost exclusively about obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm-hmm. But... I'd like to to hear about the overlap because I know you suffer from kind of more general anxiety and also sp- very specifically from panic attacks. Yeah. And I'd like to hear, do you, do you think of these things as related or do you think of it as sort of like you have this real vulnerability to being anxious kind of in any number of ways or do they feed each other? Yeah. I think, hmm, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Um, the good news is that my anxiety is much better. Tell me more about that. Um, with internal family systems and another approach called EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Now let's slow down, okay. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Yeah. Why don't you just tell me a little bit what that is for people not familiar with EMDR? Oh, sure. It was developed in the 80s by a psychologist that realized that if you stimulate the brain bilaterally, as the person is taken back to some events in their past, that we can move the storage of that memory from one part of the brain to the other. And in that movement of those memories, they hold less impact on a person's fears, worries, emotions. Right. So concretely, when you say stimulate the brain bilaterally, you're talking about like sounds that alternate from right ear to left ear or moving your eyes back and forth to the right or the left or feeling right. of buzzing in your right hand and your left hand, so that there's a stimulation that comes in on either side, back and forth. That's right. Okay, so tell me more. How did EMDR help you with anxiety? Uh, it helped me mostly with the panic attacks. I was having debilitating panic attacks as, as a therapist up until last year, or even closer. And I would be in the middle of a session, and all of a sudden my body, I would feel like I was coming out of my skin. And I would do everything in my power to contain that feeling, while I'm in the presence of a client who I didn't want, of course, to know anything about what I was suffering with. Oh, that sounds so awful, and while you're trying to pay attention and really be present with them. Right. I mean, it's supposed to be about them, not me. It sounds almost impossible. It was grueling, uh, but I did the best I could. And finally I said, I need some additional help. So I went to uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapist. And in literally nine sessions, the total, um, the panic attacks were gone. Wow. And so would you go back to a scene where you'd had panic and then experience this bilateral stimulation, and then over time it just kind of, the anxiety about it lessened? Yeah, I, I would be asked to bring up that memory of when I had the panic, and I had a renewed sense of confidence. I could handle it. Um, one of the worst panic attacks I had, and the most embarrassing one, was in front of a couple that I was counseling. And so my EMGR treatment was to go back to that scene in my mind when I was with that couple and had the panic attack in front of them and was embarrassed and humiliated. Do you feel like now, I mean, it sounds awful. It was. I also wonder... Now that the panic is so much less powerful for you, do you yeah. think there's ever a way, I mean, this may be completely utopian fantasy here, 
you think there's ever a way that you might experience intense anxiety like that in your work and be able to kind of speak for it and model not being ashamed of it in a way that might actually help your client? Yeah, well now, and sometimes I do self-disclosure, it's rare though uh, with my clients because you know, we're always taught as therapists not to get into our own stuff. But there are some clients I share who suffer with debilitating anxiety and panic what I've suffered with um, because I'm not ashamed about it. And of course, it's easier to talk about it when you feel like you've overcome it. When you're in the middle of it, it's very hard to talk about it. Right, because it's so live. The anxiety is so it's real. It's so real. It's happening. But if it's in the past, I can say, wow, I've conquered that. And there is a way out. I haven't shared with you uh, on the air about the thing I most felt shame about when that was when I was in the hospital. Why don't you tell me about that? What, what happened that you were hospitalized? Well, in 2010, 2009, somewhere around then, things got to such a head that I couldn't deal with it anymore. I actually, um, my wife and I were having some struggles, and I couldn't go home because I didn't feel safe there. And I couldn't go to my parents because I didn't feel safe there anymore. So the only place that seemed like I could go was maybe the hospital. So did you did you bring yourself voluntarily to the hospital to ask for help? Oh, I, I cussed and moaned as my father came over to take me, and I said, I'm not going, I'm not going. But I knew I needed to go somewhere. I needed to get help. Mm-hmm. So he drove me there. And the whole time in the car, I said, this, this is going to change my career. This is going to change my life. You know, there's something about inpatient versus outpatient that just conjures up a lot of feelings like, I was not in control enough that I had to be hospitalized. That That's so frightening. But I, I just didn't feel I had any other choice. I had to go. So we go through the whole admission process, and they put the bracelet on your hand, and of course that was very shaming. You know, I have to have this ID bracelet. And then they took me to the unit, and I guess it was the time that some visitors were visiting, and there in front of me on the unit is one of my previous patients with his spouse and I'm standing in one of these hospital johnnies with this ID bracelet strip and I felt so vulnerable so embarrassed he, I think he said boy you make visits to the hospital and I said no this time I'm here myself hmm. did you get to see him again was he there again while you were there to actually talk to him or was that the only encounter uh, later on a day or two later I saw him and we talked and we shared stories about how tough it can be. At the same time, I'm feeling kind of yucky saying, I shouldn't be sharing this with my client. I was always taught you don't share those things. This felt very yucky and uncomfortable. So I don't think we talked too much more after that. And he eventually sought out another therapist, which kind of added more salt to the wound. But I also understand that the, the dynamic had changed. I see. So were you still, you were actively seeing him at the time? Mm, he had faded away like about a month before I went in the hospital. I stopped hearing from him. I see. Oh, that just sounds like such an awkward, difficult situation because you really were feeling so vulnerable yourself. I was. And, I, I just didn't have hope that this place could change things. And did it? Unfortunately, no. I see. I so... Was, 
Yeah. I was there six weeks, six long weeks, and I think I actually was in worse shape when I got out. Mm. And so what? I lost a lot of weight. Um, people said I look gone. Don't like to speak negatively about any facility, but we did a lot of mindfulness, which can be helpful for some, but for someone with OCD, I, I just didn't find it helpful. I see. So your introduction to internal family systems and EMDR, did that come after the hospital? Well, interesting. I was actually in the middle of going through some training myself as a therapist for internal family systems. So I knew there was something that was much better, but nobody in the hospital knew internal family systems because it's still relatively new in relation to what a lot of hospitals are using. Right. And I even had the book with me and wanted to show it to people, but they kind of nodded and said, that's terrific, but this is what we use. Right. So, Rob, we're going to have to end, but I want to just close because it strikes me that, so that was not that long ago. We're talking about 2009, 2010. Mm -hmm. It's now 2014. And it sounds like, in fact, you went from feeling very hopeless to now being largely free of panic and your OCD is in such a different place. Um, oh, absolutely. I, I've got a very busy schedule with clients where there's no panic really in my life and I'm enjoying life, loving it beyond I could ever imagine, working hard, feeling very productive. And I look back on that stuff and it was such a dark place that I went through dark times but it feels like ages ago even though a relatively short time it, it hasn't been that long and so if I was someone who had OCD and was struggling with feeling hopeless or I knew someone with that what would you want to say to me that would you know beyond trying IFS and, and EMDR as two different therapy modalities is there anything else you would want me to know that might help me to feel more hopeful about my future? Right. Well, never, never, never give up. Uh, that Keep searching for the right therapist who is patient with you and knows what he's doing. But also, beyond just therapy, uh, really believe that there is there is a way out of this mess. It doesn't have to be as painful as it was for me for so long. There are some really good approaches and people out there who do get it. Yeah. You know, I realize, I know people are going to be curious about this. Um, so I, I need to ask you, do you also take medication for it, Rob? I still do, but I've cut back a lot. Uh-huh. So that has not been the mainstay of your treatment, as far as you're concerned. Well, I wouldn't discount medication. It's, it's very helpful. Um, but uh, I think these new approaches, like IFS, internal family systems, and EMDR, uh, are very, very effective for many things, uh, including OCD. Uh, and uh, as I feel stronger and stronger and mark this day, that I feel the strongest ever, uh, I can lower my medication gradually, which I've been doing for the past six months to a year. 
That's so wonderful to hear. Rob, thank you so much for being oh, my thank guest. You, man. I feel very moved. You know, you let me know years ago that you might be open to doing this with me and I feel so glad that we oh, that we you. did this interview. I feel very, very moved by your story and your generosity in sharing it. Okay, well I it's my pleasure, as I said, and I thank you for creating the space for me. My guest today is Rob, a practicing psychotherapist in the Boston area, who's been talking about his experience with obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, and panic attacks. If you would like to learn more about this, uh, the two resources that Rob recommends are Internal Family Systems Therapy. You can learn about this at their website, centerforselfleadership.org, or EMDR, which you can find on the web also at emdr.com. If you did not get a chance to hear this whole interview and you'd like to, or if you'd like to send the link to a friend, please go to our website, which is safespaceradio.com. There you can download the interview for your morning commute on your smartphone. You can also send it to a friend. You can also subscribe to get a weekly email with a link to this week's show, and I'd love to invite you to do that. You can also download the show from iTunes. You can like us on Facebook. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show and Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely.